Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. From best-selling authors to researchers, we share insights from the sharpest minds in psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. And today we get to share a conversation with you that really got us thinking about the demands of parenting in a complex world. Our guest is Dr. Dana Suskin, the founder and co-director of the TMW Center for Early Learning and Public Health. Just a note, she's co-director with John List, her husband and previous guest on Behavioral Groups. Yes. So there we go. She is also professor of surgery and pediatrics at the University of Chicago. Yes. Dr. Suskind is also the director of the Pediatric Cochlear Implant Program and is recognized as a national thought leader in early language development. She has dedicated her research to optimizing foundational brain development and preventing early cognitive disparities and their lifelong impact. Honestly, when she talks about raising kids, we need to listen. I think this idea of American individualism that is such an important part of our society, that you have to be tough and independent and go it alone, has infiltrated into this idea of parenting that it is a go it alone sort of thing. And look, I, I want to be clear that only parents and caregivers, they are the ones raising their children, but but none of us do it. Parenting doesn't happen in a vacuum of supports. And we've misinterpreted that idea that parents are their children's parents with the idea that we need to just absolve ourselves from any societal support. In our conversation with her, we discussed her latest book, Parent Nation, Unlocking Every Child's Potential and Fulfilling Society's Promise, which is about how important it is to set up a system that gives parents and their children the best chances for success. Our kids, as anyone who is a parent can tell you, are literally the future of the world. Actually, you don't even have to be a parent to know that. They are literally the future of our world. And we need to give them every opportunity to be the best and to optimize who they can become. God, that, that is so true, Kurt. Our conversation with Dr. Suskind reminded us a little bit of our conversation with Linda Babcock when we talked to her about her book, The No Club. So Linda talked about seeing a problem at work, like doling out too many non-promotable tasks to women, that we often look to the individuals to fix it. So like she would, so Linda would say, you know, don't tell women just, uh, no, you know, don't do those tasks anymore. Stop that. It's the behavioral science perspective that has, has pointed out to us that context matters and that just telling people to say no doesn't always work. So this her, our conversation with Linda wasn't so much a fix the women discussion as it was a fix the corporation discussion. And the same is true for this conversation with Dr. Suskin. It's not a fix the parent issue. It is a fix the system discussion. And we are eager to share that conversation with you. We should also note that the discussion is, for the most part, about raising kids in the United States. Parent Nation was written about the problems with American social norms, policies, and approaches to parenting. And in many ways, she points out that the American system doesn't really match up with what's best for the kids or the best practices that the rest of the world has already adopted. Right. And just to let you know, it might come across as like a big bitch session about how terrible the United States is when it comes to policies around kids, parents, and families with young children. But it's not really a bitch session. It, no. We talk about some of the things that can be done to make our world a better place. Tips on being a better parent, like the three T's. Oh, yeah. And you're going to need to listen to the episode in, in order to find out what they are, or, or even better, buy Dana's book. That's all true. We also talk about governmental policies around maternity and paternity leave and how important those things are to raising healthy kids. And that our American culture really needs to get away from this do-it-on-your-own parenting myth. There are lots of things we can do as a society to help give our kids, every kid, a better chance in life. Oh, wow. And with that, Groovers, we encourage you to sit back with a frothy draft of great parenting and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Dana Suskind.
Dana Suskin, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me. It is so much a pleasure to have you. And we want to get started with a speed round, as we always do. And our first question is deeply penetrating. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> super. Oh, super. Okay. Is that a gender-related response? Or? It's not. Actually, we, when we, we interviewed, you know, your husband, John, he said coffee and tea. He was, he was like saying both, he, you know. I, I'm a very good wife. I bring him tea every morning. <laughs> <laughs> Looking that I can do. So. Well, he did mention he was traditionally a coffee person and he's been switching to tea more recently. Is that your, is that your doing? Yeah. No, no, no. He had a bad experience with a cappuccino and... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god the bad experience with the cappuccino okay all right, all right. well well be, okay. beyond that we'll, we'll, we'll go to the the next one all right so if you could have dinner with your favorite musician or your favorite actor or actress who would you pick oh this is such a hard question because there are so many people that I would want. These, um, these are supposed to be simple, easy questions. This is like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll do my actress. I'll do... I mean, now I just, I'm completely blanking on who I would... Uh, would it be a musician or would it be an actor, actress? Let's let's narrow it down that way first. I would say a an actress. Okay. 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 I'll say Meryl Streep. Ooh, that would Ooh. be good. Yeah. She, she is... She's both a chameleon, but at the same time, you can feel the courage of her convictions in every role that she has. You can almost feel who she is, despite her being able to morph into so many people. Oh, my gosh. She is one of those actresses that just embodies the character that they're playing, but you can feel that energy. I love it. So, And yet, she you're you're right. Like, she's there in every role. It's pretty amazing. Really? Okay. So, uh, the Washington Post wrote that... It is better to be born rich than gifted. Would you agree or disagree? Well, considering it was in the pages of my book that I described it, I would uh, agree that is the uh, the central problem in our in our society. All right, and we'll get into this as we're going, but we have a final final speed round question. So, in your book, again, you, you bring up John Amos. Comenius, if I pronounced his last name right, there, who championed education for children but believe that education shouldn't start before the age of seven because it could be harmful to the child's development. Do you think that he got that right or did he get that wrong? Well, <laughs> I hope this is an easy question for you. What we didn't have was the, the neuroscience, the burgeoning neuroscience that allowed us to understand that learning doesn't start on the first day of school, but the first day of life. So I, I assume that with he would have updated his priors with the powerful science that we have right now. So <laughs> we all learn and they evolve, right? Right. So. Well, and again, you got to, that was, he was uh, pretty, what, 15, 1600? I can't remember exactly when he was around, but it was, it was quite a, a few hundred years ago. So he was. But he was brilliant. I mean, he yeah. is the reason that public education, you know, an education for all children became a thing. So yeah, uh, yeah he's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. That is fantastic. Okay, so we're talking about Parent Nation. Um, it, it's a book about cognitive development in young children, society's role in the development. What are the salient points that you want to make sure that that our listeners get about the book? I think at the end of the day, it is about the fact that, especially in our country, that we have convinced parents that, and caregivers that they should go it alone in the critically important work of, you know, the labor and love that goes into raising the next generation and that neuroscience, the powerful neuroscience can really provide a pathway and a framework for going forward, how to both right this country and better support um, the guardians of our country's future, parents and, and caregivers. So they deserve help and support, as I guess. <laughs> Well, and that's one of the things that I, I found really fascinating about the book is this idea that particularly within the U.S., we have this very individualistic society, you know, kind of meme or norm that we kind of believe in. And that has uh, it's been really powerful in some ways for the for the country. Right. It's, it's helped us do a lot of different things. But on the other hand, as you talk about in this idea of raising children, it has kind of limited some of the ability there. So how much. Is it about the societal norms that as we're thinking about 
bringing our children up in a way that is going to, as you said, you know, that next generation and make them more successful than, than we are. How much do we have to change our norms uh, from a society versus just doing a better job as parents? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, I, in, look, the, I think this idea of American individualism that, you know, is such an important part of our society that you have to be tough and independent and go it alone has infiltrated into this idea of parenting that it is a go it alone sort of thing. And look, I, I want to be clear that only parents and caregivers, they are the ones raising their children, but, but none of us do it parenting doesn't happen in a vacuum of supports. And we've misinterpreted that idea that parents are their children's parents with the idea that we need to just, you know, absolve ourselves from any societal support. It's sort of, you know, I'm a surgeon, I'm a, obviously a social scientist, but I'm a surgeon as well. And nobody in their right mind would hand their children over to me to go back to the operating room to operate alone. Like, you would shudder if I didn't have the anesthesiologist, if I didn't have the circulating room nurses, if I didn't have the supply chain to make sure I could do my job right. And I think in that same way, we need to think about, you know, the supports for parents and caregivers in that way that, yeah, absolutely, you are the parent, but we are short shrifting not just the children of our country, but our country itself by sidelining parents, both today from the economic standpoint and our human capital of tomorrow. So, yeah. That's so if you, if you were to lean in one direction, is it more about sort of organically growing social norms that are different or to what degree do policymakers uh, play in this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in, in sort of charting a path forward, which is, you know, much of what I have been thinking about and writing about, it's the way, same way as I think of healthy brain development happening. It's not just one part of the brain. All yeah. parts of the brain come together to be who you are for optimal brain development. In that same way, we need to think about each part of societal's role in building the next generation. I think a first important part is a shifting in social norms and elevation of expectations, right? I think very clearly we need to reframe what parents and caregivers do as not just, you know, we think about parenting in this country as like sort of like buying a puppy, I've heard people say. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so cute, you know, go go forth. Instead of saying, oh my gosh, parents and caregivers are raising the next generation. They are the guardians of our children's future. And not only do we have a vacuum of support. Sometimes we make it that much harder. So we need that as a result, you know, in order to shift, you know, our investment from a policy perspective, but it's a, you know, an employer perspective. It's a healthcare perspective. It's not just, I don't want this to be just a policy play. Certainly they play an important role, but then you, it's, it's all of us. Yeah, it's it's not one single thing. It's it's the multitude of different aspects. But you need the multitude. You need to get all of the pieces right based on what I'm hearing you say. And that is it's a tricky kind of puzzle piece that you got to figure out all the pieces that are going together. One of the things that I just found really that I loved about Parent Nation, but that I also found really disturbing or or unsettling for me is how poor of a job the U.S. does uh, on paid parental leave relative to other parts of, of the world. And you talk about, you know, just the, the, mere, the fact that there is really no policy or statement that we have to have paid parental leave. How important is, is that to helping parents, helping kids in, in becoming, as you said, is, is, is a piece of that larger puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. And before I dive in, just to be clear, paid leave is only one of the multitudes of supports that every other country provides children, <laughs> provide families that we don't have. It's just the fact that paid leave um, that 38 other developed nations have that we don't have has resulted in one in four mothers going back to work after two weeks. I mean, like, seriously? I don't know. I mean, you all haven't given birth, but it's not always the, the walk the park. But, you know, 77% of employee, employees don't have paid leave. And, you know, it's just tremendously powerful signal of about how little we value and believe in, you know, children and families, we talk a big talk, but the fact that we don't have it. Um, and then when we do have it, we've made, you know, there's a social norm that, you know, especially dads, we know, 
Paid parental leave has so much science behind it. It's got the economic case. Women come back to work. They have less perinatal postpartum depression. They have better bonding with their kids. Fathers who take it have better bonding with their children. Their children do get better. They, if they're in a, you know, a married household, they decrease divorce. And there's science to show that healthier brain development for babies. So like the case is clear. I mean, this pays for itself, but even when they do, when companies do have it, right? And some of these big, you know, Google finance companies have very generous policies, but I've heard time and time again that in the back room, people don't take it. It's like, oh gosh, I'm, you know, I, everything will fall apart without me. Or more importantly, like, you know, there was one big finance uh, venture capitalist who said, you know, anybody, this is great, but anybody who really, any guy who takes it is like, he actually used the word loser. Um, and wow. look, not about forcing people to do this is not it's important that things don't become ideologic on either side right it's about what people feel comfortable and want to do but you should be able to feel supported both from the policy and the social norm perspective so well we know social norms have a huge impact on people's behavior we you know that's just that it's a known fact and this idea of yeah we have it but you don't take it and i can't remember was it the CEO of Yahoo when she got pregnant and then she came back to work like within the week, you know, kind of bringing all of that in. And, and so those those unwritten rules are, you know, sometimes as powerful as the written rules that that we have that say that we can do this. And I know we have friends that are in Denmark and my, my wife and I, when we had kids, we said, well, we should move to Denmark because they have such wonderful um Elements, they, you know, fatherly parental leave for like a year that they can take within the first five years of their children's lives. Women, I think, believe, or I think if the father was six months, woman has a, has a year or more. And it's just a different modality that that is what is expected that people do when they have children, that they stay home, that they raise their kids, that it is a, a joint component. It isn't the mother only. It is a father-mother you know, partnership on that. And it's just sad in my, again, as I said, when, when I read that part of, of the book, I was just reminded me of that. And, and then the story that you told of the pediatrician who didn't have paid time off. And you're kind of thinking of anybody, pediatricians would be the ones that would understand the need for that development. So. Yeah. And, you know, towards that end, you know, we, the social norms are so strong that there was a, I don't know if you remember this in the book, this uh, incredible researcher, Caitlin Collins at WashU looked at sort of how we internalize this, because at some level we've internalized this, you know, go it alone phenomenon. And when things don't work out, we feel bad, we feel guilty. You know, we're, you know, I heard time and time again, you know, I've feel like I'm failing in all parts of my life rather than asking why is society failing me? And she found that this idea of, you know, parental guilt or specifically maternal guilt is a uniquely American phenomenon. Because if you've been convinced that this is a go it alone thing, that this is something that is all on your shoulders without any societal support, when things aren't going well, and let's face it, raising children and working and you know, dealing with every, you know, the pandemic really made it clear that this is not a go it alone. You self-blame. And in some ways, I think that that is part of the issue in sort of pushing things forward because you're almost paralyzed, right? You become not just the victim, but you feel unworthy of societal support. So I think as much as, you know, look, we can all name all the policies from a government from an employer standpoint, but we've got to also shift it within our standpoint, not just gap gaze is, look, I think there's so much discussion about this in the news, like the parents aren't all right, but we've got to move forward and say, you know, the parents aren't all right. We've got to come together. We've got to elevate our expectations because it can be different and it really can be. So that I wouldn't be writing this book if I didn't believe wholeheartedly that we can shift things. Well, and, and this this parental guilt uh, is, is especially true for uh, the women, for the mothers in in these uh, situations, right? Are there any things that come to mind that that you think that the individually can be done, that especially mothers can sort of go, well, wait a minute, I'm I'm catching myself in this in this spot. What 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 should, 
What do you think they should be doing about that? Aside, mm-hmm. Again, we've got social norms and policies and all kinds of things that need, that are impacting this, but is there anything yeah. they can do on an individual basis? I mean, just related to, to this issue. I mean, I think that, you know, I always say, look, in some ways, this book is a love letter to parents and caregivers. <laughs> you know, what they, they are the brain architects. They are incredible. But this moment in time has... It is so hard, and I want them to give themselves, number one, grace, right? I really do believe in this thing of good enough parenting. I mean, there's no such thing as perfect parenting, and I can tell you from personal experience, but your kids are going to be okay. And to give yourself grace and start self-talk, right, reframing this narrative, you are the guardians of this country's future. And, you know, these feelings and what's going on is less about you than the societal constructs that have been built to make it so hard. Start talking about it, elevating the conversation, not just about like how bad it is, but how these things need to change and, you know, elevate this conversation, band with other people at work, you know, about the changes we need. There's nothing greater than a purpose greater than yourself to make you realize, you know what, I am powerful and things need to change. But I don't want to add more to their shoulders, but (laughs) reframing it even in their own heads is a really important first step. So you mentioned the pandemic, right? You mentioned that, that we have just come through what has obviously been the worst pandemic we've had in well over a hundred years. Has the past two years influenced the way that you're looking at these problems? Has it changed anything the way that you're seeing how parents interact with their kids and the child development and the societal pieces? Anything different that you're seeing from the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, we can talk about the impact of the pandemic on child development and the early, you know, research coming out is not a, not a pretty sight. I'm quite concerned. But we'll, I'll, I'll put that to the side because I don't think that's what you're asking. What you're asking is, did the pandemic sort of change my thinking? And I, I wouldn't say it changed it. It just sort of, not just doubled it, double, I just doubled down on these ideas, but more importantly, it broadened the tent. I mean, when I started thinking about writing this book, it was really about because of the families that we work with at the center, the TMW Center, incredible families, primarily low-income families, you know, from the south side of Chicago, I always say, look, you know, we make it absolutely impossible for some parents to parent in this country. And I saw working the, with these incredible families, they would embrace the interventions, you know, the three T's, talking and interacting with their children to build their children's brains. And I would see time and time again these barriers put in the way of families, right? Uh, you know, from the issues of the gig economy and having less than 30 hours, 30 minutes a day to spend with your kid without benefits and the stress that goes along with it, the issues of homelessness, the issues of mass incarceration, the things that I saw families who wanted just what every family wants to give their children the best start and seeing this huge disconnect between what we know parents and children need and what we were doing was the fire that really pushed me to write Parent Nation. But then COVID hit and I started, you know, writing and thinking and I realized, oh my gosh, even that not only do we make it impossible for some families in this country, but we make it incredibly hard for almost every family in this country. And that we have this huge disconnect between the science and what we do, what we say we believe in this country, that we're about families and family values and what we do. And, you know, so I really intentionally broadened the families that I talk to. Obviously, the families that I work with and I care deeply about, um, you know, are huge, important uh, narratives in in the book, but I talked to families from all different education, racial and ethnic, socioeconomic and and religious and political backgrounds, because we've been sort of sold this idea that, oh, we're so so polarized at this moment in time. And it's absolutely true, but I think we're tired of it. And when you really look in these early years, almost families have been completely sidelined. You know, at the moment in time when policies and supports could have an outsized influence for children and families, we leave everyone alone. And, you know, what was funny is that when I talked to these families, you know, I spoke to evangelicals who homeschool their children, you know, physicians and PhDs who are 
forced to lose the workforce, et cetera, et cetera. And when I gave them a magic wand and you removed all this language about policy and bipartisanship, at the end of the day, not only did all parents want the same things for their kids, just to give them the best first start, not only did they all feel like they were the only ones struggling, but when you gave them the magic wand, the supports that they wanted look remarkably similar, right? We just want time and support so we can give our kids the best first start. And let me tell you, we do, we, we don't do any of that. So <laughs> right, that's a wrong way to answer. Yes. <laughs> so that was a great yes, actually. That was that was one of the best yeses I think I, I think we've ever heard. There are there's so much to unpack in that, but can we get to some of the data that you've uncovered around the impact on kids through through the uh, pandemic? Yeah, and, and let me be clear, it's not coming out of you know our research center, but there's some really disturbing early. I want to emphasize it's early uh, looks at the the fact that the developmental milestones appear to be really delayed in children being born during this pandemic. It's coming out of, I believe, NYU and Columbia, really showing that milestones, not just in language and cognition, but you know, even physical developmental milestones appear to be delayed. And you could say, well, gosh, is this from actually like mothers having COVID? And the truth is, is, is it's not looking like it. It's looking very much like it's being mediated by the incredible stress that parents are dealing with. You know, you could say, oh, they're home and they're having more time with their kids, but it is an incredibly stressful period of time. And we know that stress of parents, the mental health status of parents seeps into the development of children. And we know toxic stress is not good for children's healthy brain development. And it uh, it looks like this is what's happening. Again, it's early and it's going to play out, but I think it's a very scary wake up call. I mean, you know, remove. I'm not even talking about the K twelve space, which is not my area of expertise. It's really the early years, and not only does it look like it's being mediated through stress of parents, but they're talking less. You know, mm. when you're stressed and you're worried, you know, we know that the child credit went away. Like all of a sudden, you know. 40% more kids are back in poverty. You're not going to have the time and the, you know, wherewithal to be able to spend time talking and reading to your kids if you're worried about getting food on the table. So I'm worried about a generation of, of children. I really, really am. Well, your first book was 30 million words. And so, and I was trying to explain this to my my family around the dinner table the other night. And I'm going, you know, this is really cool. Like the difference that cool, but again, just kind of disheartening, right? This idea that there's a difference in people and the amount of words that they hear when they're a child and how that unduly impacts their, their larger life. So when you're talking about that, we're talking less, it's not, you know, I think people don't necessarily correlate, well, what should that matter? But it does. Can you talk a little bit maybe about some of the original research that you did about just even kids hearing words in their in their development? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I really, I've, before I jump in, I want to really reframe that the first book, 30 Million Words, Building a Child's Brains, people really interpret it as number of words. And I yeah. guess it makes sense because that's the title. Of <laughs> right. But really, at the end of the day, what is critical for healthy brain development in those first three years of life is nurturing interaction with language. It is the serve and return, the, the peekaboo and the reading. It's so simple, but it is yet so complex. And, you know, so I've, I've moved away from calling it 30 million words because it totally takes people off the right, wrong track. But, but it remains to be true that the science and the neuroscience, which undergirds my work uh, as a pediatric doctor and a social scientist, really shows that parents and caregivers in the first three years of life are children's brain architects. People don't realize that, you know, that critical for all learning, critical for human development, health, is the healthy brain development in those first three years of life. When 85% of the physical brain is grown, right? We come out totally helpless as individuals, as humans, unlike any, you know, unlike zebras and puppies who are pretty, you know, can start walking almost immediately humans are helpless. And it's because the universe made a trade-off. It decided to be the most brilliant of the human species. We needed 
this fourth trimester where parent, it expected parents and caregivers to build the brain through language and interaction, uh, because otherwise our brain, our heads wouldn't fit through the mother's birth canal. And so what this allows is for a huge amount of input to build a brain. But I say in some ways, society, especially our country, squanders this incredible gift that we've been given by pulling caregivers and parents away during this powerful time and don't not supporting them. So I want people, you know, any of your listeners to really rethink these years. It's not that the first three years of life are the impo only important time or it's ever too late. That's not the story. But we are squandering when we are building, having the most ro robust brain development and human development. You've heralded the three T's. You, you mentioned a little earlier. Could you, uh, for our listeners, uh, share the three T's and the importance behind them? Yes, absolutely. So can, so with this idea that the first three years of life are so critical, all this brain development is happening. Parents are the brain architects of their children and caregivers. How do you build a brain? It really, strangely enough, it is not that complex. Um, <laughs> the, uh, really funny, but we in, in our center, and let me just really emphasize that people around the country are doing this important work, not just us. We've boiled down the science to what parents and caregivers need to do, the three T's. Tune in to your child, follow your child's lead, get on their, their level, talk more, use rich language, talk about the past, the future, and the present, and then take turns. View your child as a conversational partner from day one. Even when they, you know, when they can't even use real words, they're trying to communicate with their babbles and their pointing. And these three T's combined with the importance of protection from toxic stress, because stress and toxic stress is bad for the brain. If we can provide these children these critical elements, you can help optimize foundational brain development. But again, going back to the fact that parents and caregivers don't operate in a vacuum, parents and caregivers need these same things. They need time, they need enrichment, they need to be able to provide their children, you know, nurturing and calm homes and Society needs to help make sure that happens, all of us. Yeah. The book seems, at least it appeared to me, it was intensely personal, that you brought in your, you know, many of your own personal stories, obviously the stories of the parents that you're working with through the clinics and other pieces of this. How much of that, um, what, was that easy for you to share? I mean, from a writing perspective, is that, did it come off as, uh, was it difficult to write about some of those personal components or was that, you know, no, this is part of that story. As you said, you had a passion about, you know, conveying this. So how, how was the writing of that? No, I mean, and I know you're, you're referring to the loss of my first husband, Don, who, who is an amazing human who drowned saving two kids in Lake Michigan uh, when my children were young. And I wanted to share the story, one, because he's always with me, but more importantly, because I think that we, none of us go through life without a lot of hardship and uncertainty. And I, you know, in losing my husband in that moment in time, despite being a doctor, I thought, oh my gosh, what is going to happen? You know, will, will my children be okay? Will I be able to move forward? And I was surrounded almost immediately, enveloped by my community, by my, my employer, by all of the people around me to really prop me up so that I could not only get on my feet back again, but my children would be okay. And I think, not I think, every parent des deserves that. Every parent wants to give their child the best start. And we have just made so much uncertainty and risk, place so much uncertainty and risk on families, especially in this moment in time. I mean, not that it was so different 50 years ago, but we had a lot more safety nets. It shouldn't be less left up to chance. It shouldn't be left up to luck that, you know, you have an employer or community around you. We should have these embedded in our society because that's aligned to with whom we are as Americans. And so sharing it, it is always hard, but at the same time, it it makes me feel happy because it makes brings Don along along this this journey that I do. But also, I want people to know that we need every family deserves that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know, hard or not, it was an important part of the story. So Dolly Chug writes about uh, headwinds and tailwinds. I don't know if you're familiar with Dolly. She's at uh, NYU, and uh, you know, so she you talk about uncertainty and and risk as being this unfair burden. Uh, I think Dolly would use the term headwinds 
to say that there are things that are just against us. What kind of tailwinds, what kind of benefits, what kind of boosts and positive support systems do you think we need to act on, especially in the United States, but but around the world when it comes to parenting? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, in some way, using the neuroscience as the pathway forward framework, I think it allowed us to see, you know, in the same way, the three buckets of, you know, what children need can really align what we understand parents and caregivers need. It's really not that complex. So at the, you know, while I can share many, many things, I think that, you know, number one, we as a society and policymakers, we need to invest more. The fact that we in other countries, the average investment for toddlers and childcare is about 14,000 a year. I mean, forget about Norway, which is 24,000. We're, we're a whopping $500 a kid. We, you know, we need to stay active. I mean, the numbers, we need to just start investing more, you know, whether it be through paid family and medical leave. So all children that in those first years of first time periods of life, they can be with their caregiver to high quality childcare. We are a full workforce society. If we want to get women back in the workforce, um, you know, the great resignation really showed us, you know, you can't give people impossible choices, but that they know that they're being cared for, their children are being cared for by a fairly compensated, high-quality workforce in childcare. We need employers to step up, right? Family-friendly policies, understanding the flexibility and the fact that we all, at the end, many people, most people are parents, and when they're not, they still care about the future because they're those next wave of teachers, doctors, you know, bus drivers are the children of today. And so I think it just thinking about it in that way are, is the way to sort of see going forward. It's, and not to see it as zero sum game. I mean, you know, we've the huge inequality in this country and high returns on investment has really led to this sort of not so positive aspect of feeling like parenting is not a zero sum game. We need to make society so all kids can have a chance so that our society can thrive. But yeah, that was a long answer to it was it was a wonderful answer. I think that you touched on a number of pieces that again, we can understand at a at a high level, but just by putting them out there, we don't pay attention to them enough. We're not thinking about them enough. The difference that you just that struck me there is the 14k versus 500. I mean, it just seems uh, ludicrous to me that the richest nation in the world is is not putting some of those resources back into the next, you know, this is a very short-term thinking if we think about it from that perspective. It is a now, here and now versus not even, it, it's it's not even like a 50 years down the line. This is, this is the next 20 years. This is 30 years down the line, 10 years down the line of, of, of how this happens. So yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. We, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, like after writing and thinking, you know, we've got the strongest scientific case, okay, short and long-term gains. We have a huge economic case. I mean, look, the economic, our businesses are suffering. I mean, we have, we have got bipartisan belief. I mean, uh, you know, 80 plus percent of people think that we should have paid family and medical leave, right? That parent, mother shouldn't go back after two weeks. This is not a partisan issue. What we don't have is the public and political will. And, you know, I've, after all this thinking, I've just come to the conclusion that the bright spot that we have to focus on is actually a similar situation of a similar group, you know, half a century ago, the elderly who were the, the poorest, most marginalized age group at that time. They didn't even vote a lot. I mean, they're so different than they are now. And through bringing their voices together, advocating through the AARP and the gray lobby, no age demographic is better supported in this moment in time. And justifiably so. I mean, they have, they have helped build this country. Well, I think parents, caregivers, any parent, anybody who cares about children in the future of their country can come together in that same way because we do us no justice by having us, you know, siloed, advocating for little tiny pieces of what is necessary. And I think this moment in time is, if not now, when? I have no, I mean, <laughs> Lord knows, I hope that there's not a, an even more, if not now, when time period. And so I want to stay positive. I believe that change can come. 
fingers crossed. Let's say you wake up tomorrow morning and all of these problems are completely ameliorated. Everything is fixed. It's it's so great that you and maybe John, but maybe just you decide to spend a year on a desert island. <laughs> what two musical artists would you bring with you to that desert island for that year? You're killing me. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> artists? Okay. I would bring John List, who doesn't sing on key, but he has a huge repertoire of songs. And I have a feeling that, you know, we, we would write some behavioral economics, uh, music that could then change. <laughs> um, and then who's the other person? We would Johnny Cash. Oh. oh, wow. And, you know, I know this, I'm just going against the stereotype of what you were thinking. And, you know, he was all about justice in the most interesting ways. And, oh. yeah. And then maybe he be able to help me learn how to sing on key because I can't even sing happy birthday. <laughs> you, you and me, you and me both, Dana. I, I do want to hear the, you and John songs on uh, the behavioral yes. economic songs that, that you guys can come up with. I think that's a, that's a project. That's your, maybe your next project as you guys, you know, are, are, are going forward, a, a whole album of, yeah. I release it on vinyl. You know, this could be super <laughs> retro, you know, I, so, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that would be that would be fun dana suskin thank you this has been an absolute pleasure such great information and again for all of our listeners uh parent nation it's a fantastic book we urge you to to go out and get it just thank you for your time thank you for your insight oh had so much fun thank you so much Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Dana. Have a free-flowing conversation and talk about whatever else comes into our overburdened, parentally tired, and worn out brains. Oh, golly. Yeah. It, in does, some it way, ever, does it ever get better, Tim? You have older kids. I, I, I still have, you know, teenagers. So does it get does it get better? I've had friends say that. Uh, the bigger the kids, the bigger the problems. <laughs> so there's that's a bit disparaging. And I don't know how accurate that is. I mean, all of our lives, right? The older that we get, the bigger the issues can be, the bigger the consequences can be. But on the other hand, get out. my thought about raising kids is to try to prepare them so that they can go off and sort of be their own people and do their own thing. And if I can continue in an advisory role, I'm happy to do so. Yeah. No, I no, mean, you're, a, you're probably starting to see that with with teenagers. You know that they're they're pushing off from the they're pushing away from the shore, right? No, they're they're flying out of the nest. They're <laughs> they're um, yes. you know taking their own path, whatever else metaphor we can use here that that talks about that. Okay, but back to Parenting Nation and our wonderful conversation. How cool it was to be able to talk to Dana while she was like traveling. She's in a hotel room getting ready to give a keynote speech and she granted us time. It was so very generous of her. Just want to say thanks to her for that. Well, and and, and the insights that she has in her book, by the way, Parent Nation, highly, highly recommend it. It, yeah. it is this kind of testament to say, look, we are doing things one way and we believe that this is the American way of doing this. And let's examine that. Let's look at this to say, is this the best? Is this really how we have to go about doing this? And is there a better way? And and in fact, there is a better way. And, and what I really like, I mean, we asked about like, does it get any easier with older kids? But what Dana brings up in the research shows, the neuroscience of the shows is that those formative years when children are just born to three, four, five years old are so important, so vitally important to their development, not only cognitively, but socially, socially, emotionally, all of those factors come into play. And if we get that right, kids are going to have a much better chance of growing up into those self idealized grownups that we so desire them to be that not only impact their lives, but impact the society that we are going to be creating. Yeah, because that's Coleman's boat. Of course, the individual actions, the individual behavior change will, will be impacted and influenced in the social norms and the social norms will be impacting the, the individuals. But I'm really optimistic that we can use science to help us figure out what needs to change. 
And I, I think that uh, Dana's uh, focus on building healthy brain development in especially those, you know, newborns to three-year-olds was really, really important. Uh, yeah. Something that while it gets talked about sort of on an intuitive basis, it was really great to hear her expand on that scientifically. Well, and it goes back. So the, this whole thing too, right? We have this society. So that brain development is is vital in that thing. And we have an American, again, uh, we yeah. know we have international listeners. And so you can get a glimpse into the American psyche here. This idea of this American rugged individualism and going your own way and all these different things, I think just lends itself to going against what the science says. And, and actually, when she was talking, it reminded me of our conversation with Henry Gee, right, where he was talking about the evolutionary leaps that we took as human beings. Part of that was this idea that we had grandparents, women yes. who were no yes. longer of childbearing years, right? They, they got out of that, but their role was to help in the raising of the children. Right. And I think as a society, you know, we still believe to a certain degree that that's the way that we live, that we have this nucleus of families and that, you know, the grandparents are there to help raise those kids. And that's not how we live our, our life anymore. Right. Well, it's not that those families don't exist. It's not right. that, I mean, we have grandparents to be there, but the dynamics of the world have changed magnificently. Right. We that, don't live with our grandparents. Right. Like we used to, we don't have right. that extended family. And again, to that point, there are some families that do. Is it the vast majority? No. Are, do our grandparents important? Yes. Do they play the vital role that they played in in past? No. No. So because grandparents today, our... yeah, are, are totally are totally different than they were forty thousand years ago. Forty thousand years, ago, the role of the grandparent was to be that extra parent to pass on that tribal knowledge. Today, grandparents are traveling and and you know uh, look, taking dance lessons and, and you know <laughs> filling out their entire. You know, uh, travel vouchers. So exactly, yeah. they're all over the they're all over the map when it comes to doing their own thing. That's because that's the world that we created. So right. we need a more systemic and more systematic approach to help build in better support systems for families, especially with young kids. Right, and and you know, and again, we look at the way society is today. So let's. We can be Pollyanna and we can go, oh, well, it would be perfect if everybody oh. had a grandparent and different things. But that's not how the world is. Right. So let's be realistic. Let's look at the world and look at this idea that says, hey, parents have a lot of competing demands. Yes. That American society isn't helped up to really help them. It's this based again, you know, this pull up by your own bootstrap, focus oh. on the individual. Right. We we have a lack of good quality paid leave in the United States. Again, yep. very different than most of the other developed nations across the world. Yep. We have a lack of quality preschools with teachers who are well-paid. We, we end up paying yes. our pre-K, you know, childcare teachers at what is minimum wage, you know, at, at oftentimes at best. And it, it's really sad. These are the people who are caregiving our children in, as Dana says, the most formative years of their lives. And so we need to have really quality um, preschools and different things. We have social norms oh, yes. that are yes. driving this idea that we got to get back into work, that we have to do all of these you know, things that, that aren't necessarily in the best interest of our children. And lastly, and this was the piece that just blew my mind, we lack the investment. Um, this idea that other developed countries spend on average 14000 a year per child, whereas the U.S. spends what? $500, $500, like a third of what other developing nations are spending. No, what? Less than a third. That that's yeah. uh, that's like less than it's like 
five percent. Oh yeah, excuse know? me. Yes, yeah, yes. It's like three percent, not three <laughs> percent. There yeah. you go. Yeah, it's terrible. I also want to harp on the on the social norm thing because this we just have to be willing to give up this cowboy gunslinger do it yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing when we have a system that is not built for everybody starting at the same place. We're yeah. if we're running a race. People are starting at different places. There's no way to get to the same finish line in a meaningful way to build up the same amount of speed when we're all starting at different places. And yeah. we can't we can't fix that in a grandiose utopian world. But if the whole world is going to get better, we have to start solving for the weakest links. We have to start making the world better for for those who are really suffering. And that is that's just really hard for me to to deal with. You know, in in 1950. There was about a 20% difference between what teachers earned when they graduated from college and what lawyers earned when they graduated from college. Today, that is a that number is 300% different. 300% today we're disvaluing teachers and the impact that they have on the world and we're increasing the value of litigation basically yeah. with with this. And we're it's all out of whack. Well, and and we look too at you know, just the economic disparities that different people have and the mm -hmm. stress. And Dana talks about how stress in the family impacts cognitive development in the child. This idea that, you know, if you live from paycheck to paycheck, that you can have the same type of child bearing ability to be there with your kid and to spend that quality time with them when you're working two jobs just to pay rent and put food on the table yeah. versus somebody who isn't is kind of, again, it's this myth and this, this idea that, well, we're all able to, to overcome these. Yes, we can. There are those instances where you see people who have come through and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. It happens. But but the and, and those are great stories, but we are captured by those stories and we don't look at the base rates and the base yeah. rates of all of this demonstrably show that those who are living in a more from from a scarcity model don't have the same opportunities that we do. And that plays into how they are able to raise their kids. And if we are thinking about our society, thinking about what that means. So this means that kids who are cognitively not as um, uh, advanced as others. And so then they're behind when they start school. And when they're behind when they start school, it's harder for them to catch up. And so maybe then they get to high school and they they drop out and then they can't get a good job. And then, you know, they leads to other factors that go into this. And so- the compounding the, effects are astronomical. Oh, yes. All right. We're getting upset here. So- I, I do want to talk about what, what we can do about this. But yes, can I just take a quick break just to express some gratitude that having a chance to talk to Dana Suskind was a remarkable gift, really, for us, because she is one of the brightest minds in the world on this topic. And we don't spend a lot of time on it. And being able to talk to one of the leading uh, practitioners, uh, researchers, and uh, she's a behavioral scientist and a surgeon and Man, we are so lucky to have these kinds of conversations and to share them with our listeners. I think it's just fantastic. Agree 100 and million percent, however many percentage points that is. My math is a little suspect. Okay. But okay. So, so what can we do? And, and I know we talked about this, that, look, this isn't a parent issue. This is a societal issue. But there are things that as parents that we can do and you know, I, I love this idea that she talks about parents and caregivers are the architects, are the brain architects for oh, our children. Yep. Love that term, brain yes. architects. And if we think yeah. about this, right, we are the ones who are laying the plans for how that brain develops, what gets grown and what gets snipped and how that then parlays into their later life yeah. and different pieces. And those you were really captured three by years the, are critical. Yeah, you were really captured by the three T's. Oh, I love the three T's. Yeah. Tune in, talk more, take turns, you know. So it's, simple. It's yeah. So simple. And yet, you know, I, I and, and this is, we talked a little bit about parent, parental guilt, right? And so I look back and I go, <laughs> oh, I could have tuned in more. I could have taken turns. 
I could take turns more with you, but I don't. I just kind of, oh, you know, I, I, I take the, the mic and I, I go with it. But let's not dwell on the if only, getting back to Dan, <laughs> Pink, let's, let's dwell on the at least, yeah. at least we share this. And at least you have, you're a good parent. You're, you're absolutely a good parent. Yeah. So, so, so let's not worry. So we got the, we got the parents things that they can do. Companies can do more too. Corporations, oh, we don't have to wait for legislation for companies to actually offer reasonable parental leave, you know, maternal and paternal leaves for newborns. This yeah. is, there's great data to demonstrate that it's good for productivity. It helps the culture. It helps actual work get done by giving people that time to be away from work, to support their kids and then come back full, full bore. You know, yeah. uh, it's it, it, so they, again, we don't have to wait for legislation for this. No, just, no, you can make bond changes. together with other parents within the organization yeah. and bring those back to leadership. If you're in leadership, you can start implementing some of this stuff right now. This idea that we have to, you know, we get too short sighted in organizations. We've talked about this in other ep episodes, right? Yeah. This idea that we have to meet whatever these quarterly numbers are today. And to do that, we we don't invest in things that are going to have long-term positive outcomes for the organization. And those organizations that do reap those benefits. And these are some of the things that you can do. Parental leave, family-friendly policies of, yes. of, you know, being able to take your, you know, take time off to go, you know, to your kids' preschool play or graduation or whatever those are, all of those help in this. And to build that in and to have those systems, you know, we think about this from a white collar perspective that it's really easy and it probably is on those, but even some of the line workers and other things is yeah. you can come up with solutions to figure out how that can be done. And if you do that, you're going to be much more successful. Absolutely. I've been in, you know, leadership roles uh, in mid-sized organizations in the past. And I know that there is always somebody at the table when an idea gets brought up of let's talk about extending family leave, uh, especially around births or adoptions. And there's always somebody that says, yeah, but, you know, all the other companies in our space aren't doing it. So we don't really have to do it. And I want to call on leaders to say, get your get some balls you know actually just let's go out and and just take a leadership position and just do it because it not only will help your organization it's going to help future generations of kids growing up when they have a better bond with their parents mm, there you go so corporations obviously can do more but i think and again i think some countries are obviously doing this much better than the us yeah. but i think countries across the globe can do a better job at this Maybe not Norway, as 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 Dana was talking about. They <laughs> kind of, right. you know, they yeah. they they do a pretty good job. But yeah. those other Scandinavian countries that are up there doing some stuff. But maybe we should model some of that, right? Absolutely. Um, and so we can we need to start with looking at policy and looking at how state and local governments, and that's where we can have a, a big impact. Every single right. one of the listeners here can go and and advocate at a local level for increasing funding and other aspects that are going to be family-friendly, parental, positive around that and, and doing that. And even at a nationwide level, we can do this. And, you know, we can demand those changes. And if we group together and we work for it, it it's not going to happen overnight. But man, it can happen. David Joachim brought up an important message when we talked to him about the importance of not always focusing on national solutions, but actually starting with the local issues. And I think that this is actually a great place to start. Th start thinking about ways that, that you can advocate for a better parental leave in your community, within your, your city, with just your town, uh, you know, your, your state, wherever you live. Make it more relevant to the people that who are your neighbors. I think yeah. that it, it might actually be more effective to start locally and grow it as a grassroots effort. And I think the other piece of that, as we talked about at the beginning of this grooming session, is the societal norms. And mm -hmm. you know what? I, I loved uh, Christina Bicchieri, I think, talked about this when we, we talked to her, is, you know, yet yeah, norms influence us. But we also influence norms, right? We right. are part of those right. norms. Right. And so by changing how we think and how we behave and how we communicate what we believe out there, 
putting things out on social media about how the, the need for this, about advocating for those and standing up and, and saying, no, people can't do this alone, that we need to have the support. We need to have these child care centers and people paid well and all of those factors going into it as part of this. And I love Dana's idea at the end she, where she talked about, you know what, 50 or 75 years ago, they didn't have, you know, the there were, you know, senior citizens didn't have the power and the ability to influence change like they did. And then they formed AARP, this advocacy group. And can't we do something similar <laughs> right. with parents? Can't we have a, you know, association of parental rights or parental something? I love it. You know, there you go. APR, right? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Why not? And because and AARP, this American Association of Retired People, has become a big influence on the way retired people are treated and they hit the demographics just right but man oh man we got to deal with the demographics around uh, around parenting and having kids this is this is the future of the world we've got to do better we have to okay well i think with that tim that's probably a pretty good spot to end this episode on what do you say all right okay I, I guess i could rant forever but okay with that groovers we want to thank you for listening we are constantly amazed at how passionate you are and the kind words and encouragement that you send us either online or on social media it's twitter linkedin instagram we are so grateful for all of us and if you want to get in touch drop us an email Connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you. We are truly thankful that you take the time out of your busy schedules to spend it with us and our guests. So thank you for that. And if you have any ideas, any suggestions, or any feedback, please, yeah. please, please, please reach out to us. We get the social media stuff, but we also get emails from people. And we appreciate those so much. We love to hear from you. We do. And with that, we hope you take the insights from our conversation with Dana and you find some way to apply them to your life or your work or your community. Maybe we can improve how we go about building a better world, raising the next generation of people that are leading the world by listening to this episode. And we hope that you found some inspiration in this episode to go out and find your groove.